Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to this week's New Statesman podcast. In which we talk about... Brexit. I mean, obviously we talk about Brexit. You ask us. And also I talked to Carrie Lloyd about Panto's A Great Christmas Tradition. Stephen, would you like to talk about Brexit for the last time in 2018? Yes, I would. I mean, I actually, I did get to write about another policy today, which I... Go on. So the ONS has... Oh, £12 billion in student debt, right, is now being moved on to the government's deficit books, thus slightly upsetting Philip Hammond's master plan to have loads of extra money to play with because it's just disappeared at a stroke of the ONS pen, right? Yeah, which, I mean, so there are, there are several fun consequentials of this. None of them are actually fun, though, are they? The, well, I mean, the, f- the first is that uh, it does obviously explode. It means all of the mission accomplished, we've closed the day-to-day deficit. Yeah, and no, everyone said we could do it. And she's like, "That's people didn't say that you couldn't do this. They said that you could do it, but you would not like the social and political consequences." And given that, what I find hilarious about like the people going, Cameron sorted home is those people are all pro-European conservatives, right? If you're a pro-European conservative, over the last eight years, basically half of the country has voted for Brexit, half of the country has voted for Corbyn, some of the country has voted for both of those things. You think those things are a disaster, which means there is no, like, this whole kind of, like, yeah, you said we couldn't do that. And it's just like, I mean... It's a bit like, yeah, like standing outside your burning house being like, you said I couldn't set my house on fire. It's like, no, I, I mean, I, I always thought that you could. I just thought you weren't crazy enough to. But, so, one, it means, and obviously, all of the mission accomplished crying, as well as being odd, because it's just like, guys, uh, the mission had some consequences that you don't like also means that the mission had not been accomplished because we had X amount of, on the deficit. Two, the other sort of the fun part is, is that because of the way that Labour calculates its spending commitments, where it basically takes the government as zero and the ONS has said this bad debt you can write off as capital spending, it has two consequences. The first is that it means that Labour no longer needs to find all 10 billion, the 10 billion it's found to pay for tuition fees, 5 billion of it, which is quite a lot of money every year yeah. it can spend on other things right so it means that yeah there are lots of other like from a kind of from a sort of getting people to vote from your perspective it is an extra five billion pounds for the opposition to hang on a minute are they saying that because labor would abolish tuition fees it wouldn't then end up with people having paid tuition fees tuition fee debt which they then wouldn't be able to repay so essentially that policy now 
effectively costs less. Yeah, because the government is going to have to find money somewhere to account for what it's doing with the five billion. Then right. Whereas if you don't charge people tuition fees to start with, then they're not going to default on paying them back. So yeah, basically, Labour at the last election had to find ten billion. Yeah. All of the loan book. Yeah. At the next election, it's found ten billion. But parking for a moment, my arguments about aspects of funding, they can arguably say they've found ten billion. Right. right? Now. They only need to have found five billion, which yeah. means that they found an extra five billion, which they could spend on ending the benefit cap. Hey. Um, early years. Early years. There are loads. Of, yeah. I mean, I, I do it this thing to be on point, and I'm feeling worried about this because I'm aware that people in shadow education listen to this podcast. I mean, they have so much. Like, really, another spending department should should probably be first in line for that five billion. Yeah, the DWP would be my obvious choice for any spare billions I found um, in the back of the sofa. But so it has that set of political implications. And the third, which was pointed out to me by a guy called Will Cooling on Twitter, which I hadn't really absorbed the implications of, is that the ONS is saying that the bad debt, like the stuff which the government is not going to get back, is capital spend. Which means that, in theory, under Labour's fiscal rule... Which they've um, allowed themselves, like, what is it, £100 billion pounds of infrastructure spending? Well, so, weirdly, they've their rule doesn't commit them to any limit. They have got a limit, presumably, for kind of, like, we believe that there's a certain amount at which the Conservatives will go, they'll spend X amount. But they can spend whatever they like for investment and infrastructure, because, you know, obviously the idea is that you get to keep the fruits of your investment in infrastructure. So notionally, Labour could use the ONS thing, Bobby, to go, well, we're actually going to write off a large chunk of bad student debt, including upon, among people who've already graduated. So wow, has, what a giveaway that would be. So it has quite a lot of policy implications, both in terms of what Philip Hammond's going to have to do in the next fiscal event. I mean, I think Philip Hammond's probably put that at number 97 on his worry about list for his next fiscal event. And with that effortless segue, yes. what they are worrying about <laughs> at the next fiscal event is, of course, Brexit. Right, okay, so I saw, I got a bit shaken this week because I saw Paul Krugman, who's an economist who I otherwise think quite a lot of, saying like, come on lads, no deal wouldn't be that bad. Like, you know, there's all these barriers between the US and Canada and it's just a mild disruption. And I thought... Am I mad? Maybe, like, I really should, you know, your whole thing about kicking the tyres. Should I kick the tyres of, is no deal that bad? Can we, could we? And I I kicked the tyres and then the tyres exploded in my face, showering me in fridges that dominate. No, who's it? Matt Hancock was claiming that he's the biggest buyer of fridges in the world, which cheered me up because he needs to refrigerate things. Yeah, I mean, this thing is, well, I think Paul, I mean, I think Krugman was a classic example of, actually, the salutary reminder of that tweet is whenever, and this is a lesson for all of us, whenever we're feeling something particularly strongly about US politics, it's just a useful reminder that we are out of our element, Donnie, as the great film. Right, and it's like, someone needs to tell Paul Krugman about the Irish border having some other things attached to it other than purely, like, tariff barriers and fight-to-sanity standards. But but also, this is one of the things that uh, Brexiteers are absolutely correct about, and one of the, the myths of the 2016 referendum on the Remain side was this idea that we were not very closely intermeshed right it's a lot more analogous to well let's put tariff and non-tariff barriers on the border between arizona and i don't know why i've picked a u.s state and i don't know what nevada i don't know anything about your books i should have picked the ones in bad times at el royale which is a very good fun silly film which is set on three borders california nevada and another one um (laughs) yeah you should have picked that that one was um, effortless um Anyway... I'm pretty sure Arizona borders Nevada. Come on, let's just go with it. Yeah, so the Arizona-Nevada border. The Dakotas must be next to each other. The North and South Dakota borders, right. So 
ultimately, there is no such thing as a French market for medicine, a British market for medicine, let alone food or any other. I, like, all of those things cross effortlessly throughout the European Union every day, including particularly in the UK context, uh, blood and blood plasma, because we still can't produce blood plasma here because of the site risk, then it may have variant CJD. Huh. So there are lots of things which we would run out of. Checkmate, um, I'm producing blood plasma right now, Stephen. That's probably, that's what, if Daniel Hannan were here, that's what he'd say. Yeah, he'd just like, you know, just have Milk me, Stephen, he'd yeah. say, like Robert De Niro um, in the, that film. Yeah, anyway. So some elements of No Deal, yeah, which could happen in, in practice won't. For example, planes will still, will still fly. There will be a reciprocal deal to prevent that from happening. And um, we would still have oversight of, we'd still be able to see all of our financial services and there would still be equivalents. Now, of course, there are two really important reasons why those things will happen. There is a huge downside risk to the yeah, EU. Yeah, they would screw the EU having, as much as they would screw us over. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, from a people in this country quite literally running out of insulin, food, medicine, clean water, etc., etc., none of those things... Well, yeah, will be prevented by any bilateral deals because there is no incentive on the other side to uh, give away your leverage by preventing those things. And crucially, yeah, ultimately, the government's political problem, if there's no deal, is not going to be some people who went on holiday to Spain who are having their own remake of that Tom Hanks film where he lives in a terminal. I think it's called The Airport or The Departure Lounge. Yeah, Or yeah. maybe it's actually just called The Terminal. Yeah, I think it might be called The Terminal. I was getting confused with the George Clooney film Up in the Air. Up in the Air, right. No, and then I was getting but confused he famously with is not Mamma Mia. Up in the Air, because he can't leave because the Terminal. Because I was thinking about Mamma Mia, and um, I thought that would be nice if you got stuck in Greece and you had to just like start a taverna and have sex with a variety of men that you then didn't know who'd fathered your child. That's the kind of thing that No Deal Brexit, I think, could lead to. Yeah, but ultimately that's not the... The thing would would be bad from a United Kingdom perspective of No Deal. The thing which would be bad would be suddenly having phytosanitary and customs checks at customs borders that are not built to do that, which right. are based on the idea that you have you know instantaneous movement within the European, which would mean we would very rapidly run out of food, medicine, and other essential items. Not least because there would definitely be panic buying. Anyone who thinks there 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 wouldn't be, I mean, one. Like they Google just... 2001 fuel protest, 2000 yeah. fuel protest sometime, or, or look at the replies to any tweet about like delays on the tube. I also think that of all the things that Britons would get down about, the fact is that animal imports and exports, there would be sad calves on the motorway, right? Yeah. And the people don't like that. I mean, I know we're a great nation of meat eaters, but people are not going to like sad calves on the motorway. Or there'll be some really heart-wrenching story about like a donkey that needed an operation or had to be rescued from a Spanish beach and then couldn't get back home. That kind of stuff is toxic for a government, let me tell you. Yeah, these... It, Someone's pet passport is not going to work and then, like, it, the government will fall. These things should not be true, but these are probably all more damaging than, you know, us running out of insulin. Yeah. But, yeah, so, so, so no. A anyone who thinks that No Deal is going to be a minor event and would be something that the government would just shrug off, I think has underestimated severely what that will be like. Well, um, that's the thing I find, of all the people I find unforgivable in the last week, I think Jeremy Hunt saying, oh, I should be fine, as a hilarious, you know, master strategic masterstroke for the Tory leadership contest is the one I've, the ones I find least forgivable. It was like, I thought you were, for, apart from anything else, Jeremy Hunt, I thought you were at least a grown-up. And now for this tiny bit of tactical advantage in your own party, you're going to pretend that Armageddon is at just, you know, bracing. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's weird. It's one of those odd things. I know that there's something just broken in my brain, but I, I don't 
get angry at people doing things for silly political advantage. I'm aware I should, but just that bit of my brain is just corroded away. It's burnt out. It's is what burnt it is. out. Yeah. Talking about people doing silly things for political advantage, I went to the theatre on Monday night, and as I came out, I got a text from my husband which said. Jeremy Corbyn's called a motion of no confidence. And I went, <laughs> no, 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 no. What you don't understand is that he called a motion of no confidence and then he uncalled it again. And he had to then explain to me that no, 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 no. He'd called it again, again, again. So thus turning his U-turn into an O-turn. But can you explain to me why actually that is a tactical masterstroke from Jay Corps? Well, so I thought the U-turn was a... So, it was a masterstroke, okay. Well, no, I didn't think the U-turn was a masterstroke. I thought the U-turn did what they needed it to do, right? Like, ultimately... What the Labour leadership needs from this process is to get to a point where one way or the other they can either turn around and go, oh, to prevent no deal, mm. reluctantly we will abstain slash vote with slash in some way facilitate. The, yeah. Or Theresa May's deal. Yeah, yeah. Or a point where the politics somehow shift to a point where they can go, reluctantly, the Conservatives are so divided, we will have to support another referendum yeah. in that order of priorities, right? But their central ask is to run down the clock in a way which doesn't cause them too much political damage, right? But that's why I'm sort of swinging behind the kind of Bush thesis which you advanced earlier about this idea that actually Theresa May's deal might pass in the end after all, which has been kind of been kicking about for a while, that if it really does come down to that versus no deal, I think there are Labour moderates at that point who begin to... Sorry, I know we're not allowed to use the word moderates, but you know what I mean? Labour pro-Europeans on the backbenchers, who would bite their tongue well, with I think their teeth? I basically think, actually, there are two nouns I wouldn't use there. One is moderates for other reasons, and the other, um, one of them is pro-Europeans, actually, because in both cases, right, you know, Ronnie Campbell, you know, a guy who, you know, was a lexiteer before some of the people who are now flirting with it uh, were born, yeah. the other day in the House of Commons said, I can't countenance no deal, right? And Ronnie Campbell is also, you know, getting on a bit. He's not saying that because he feels he needs to curry favour with his local party or mm. to do Jeremy a solid, right? He does not believe he the disruption... He wants his constituents her- to have their insulin. Yeah. yeah. And this is the thing, is that fundamentally, and this is the reason why when you talk to a, a genuine pro-European Labour Party, they're so depressed about the Labour leadership successfully taking it to the corner flag. Yeah, when push comes to shove, Ronnie... Ca- yeah, basically, almost everyone who is not on the Labour front bench will eventually vote for May's deal to prevent no deal even the ones who and i know some people will phone me and say actually this isn't true and i've said to you i'm afraid i don't believe the people who don't who right. i'm not saying they're lying now but i think they're lying to themselves but that's the point um, isn't it about they want to keep the choice open as long as possible to be no deal or no brexit or a second election and kicking article 50 on but if it really does if that tunnel narrows now which is clearly what number 10 are trying to do right now yeah. so the vote is going to be before january 21st so week of January 14th yeah and they want just to make everyone go no come on you've been through everything else you can't get an election Labour sorry the DUP are going to support us until the deal's through actually the Subris of the world are not going to no con their own government so this is it my way or the highway lads Right. Yeah, that is essentially what they. Yeah, that is what Downing Street wants and hopes. They also hope that you know, with time, and you can see it starting to happen. And I can, I have conversations where I can, I can hear pro leave and you know, kind of Brexiteer ultras doing this maths themselves. Right. It's really difficult to come up with a a plausible account of how things get better for from a if you want a more distant negotiated Brexit than this one because. The Conservative Party will... So the one situation in which people like Anna Subaru would vote a no-confidence motion would be if you ended up in a position in which it was clear we were heading towards no deal. Yeah, Nick Bowles has been the first, I think, to break ranks and say that publicly. But, um, yeah, essentially, if you think about every MP who's ever said, 
if they elect Boris, I'm not sticking around. That gives you a pretty good ready reckoner of people who would also no confidence Theresa May if they thought they were heading towards no deal. So you can see a situation where, and I do still think ultimately, right, the, the thing about this standoff is that it will be won by the people who actually have a fallback position they are comfortable with. If you are a second referendum person, your difficulty is, is you are the only group of people in this standoff for whom no deal is really unacceptable. The ERG believe that they can somehow weather it electorally. They're wrong, in my view, but they believe it. Mm. I think it's a misread to believe that there is a significant group of people in the Labour leadership who want no deal. But ultimately, from a political perspective, you're free of the European court and you've just won the next election in a landslide. And I think anyone, again, signs people have not got, got their heads around how bad no deal will be. Anyone who goes, but Corbyn is trailing in the best prime minister. All right, mate. Yes, I'm sure when people cannot buy a f- avocado, sorry, when people cannot buy a fudging avocado. Uh, <laughs> that sounds disgusting. That's one of your newfangled Nouvelle Cuisine things, isn't um, it? A fudging avocado. Yeah, I, I think that's the point. Is that they <laughs> don't know people are going to make their mind up who they want to be Prime Minister pretty quickly when they're staring at the ashes of their house like, with a pe- shotgun and some Kruger runs. I think that, that take underestimates how little attention people pay to the day-to-day mm. and how much people go a plague on both sides. And also, crucially, underestimates people's understanding of first past the post people understand no matter how annoyed they might be with one political party then if you want to punish the other political then there's yeah there's basically like vote for the opposition yeah Yeah. that won't change yeah and also and as you say trying to explain to people that actually in the long run brexit will be brilliant is an argument i would like to see someone making to somebody who has been down to their local little and found absolutely nothing in the ham shelf right yeah just doorstep politics that is not great so i basically took the view that although the kind of the weird detonation at launch uh, of them briefing they were going to do it and then... Who are we talking about? The, the No Confidence. The ERG. Oh, no, the Labour. The, the Labour No Confidence. Which was specifically in the Prime Minister. So it was actually really a censure motion, right? Kind yeah. of, by any other name. It's not the same as a No Confidence in the government, which the government has to give type parliamentary time to. And if they lose it, then it falls. So is it currently in kind of in abeyance? Basically, the government's refused to give... Because op- it's not... It would, normally, you'd have to schedule the censure motion on opposition time, which there is no more before Christmas, right? Yeah. So the government have refused to give it time. Do you think that Labour will come back with on their opposition days after Christmas? Or are they now... They got other things to do. I mean, I don't know, right? So they formally, it still exists, and formally, they are still yeah, notionally. Still it... it sort of depends when it is. There's quite a good chance there won't be an opposition day debate this side of the vote, anyway, right? Okay, because they've come back on what January the sixth ish, yeah. right? It's not the first week of yes. January; it's the second. So there's only four sitting days, presumably, yeah. if not sitting on for that Friday. So it could become redundant. I mean, equally though, right? You know, 175 Labour MPs have already had signed it this this morning, according to to Labour list. They will, of course, have the full 200 and what's it by that time. It's an opportunity for everyone to do like a nice little Facebook clip in which they go, I hate her and a little dog too. Uh, <laughs> all of which will do well. Good use of B-roll for Momentum videos and for Labour videos in the future when they want to do something anti the Tories because there'll be some good speeches against her so they might go ahead with it but crucially it has achieved well so my you know kind of things I'm glad I filed early because it meant that I've now got a historical artifact my essential view was that while the the prospect of briefing something undoing it when you get her statement and go oh wait no she isn't because basically what they said was if she doesn't give us a date we're going to no con her and then they then got they then say they then got the statement which had the date in it that's their that's their the label oh no they 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 they, they did they did that is not contested by either side so they said give us the date or we'll no con you 
And it was only after that that they got the pre-briefed bit of the speech yeah. that the government always gives you, at which point they got the date. I mean, honestly, at that stage, I'm surprised that Jeremy... I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, bless him, has got the handling of a canal barge, so... I was actually really surprised. I thought, as someone who has spent more hours than I care to contemplate watching May Corbyn back and forth at UQs over the last uh, however many years... I was surprised. He did it very well, hmm. and I would not have expected him to, because as you say, this is someone who, you know, what is the thing we usually always say, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't think that fast on his feet. Well, he's got um, the turning circle of a barge, and Brexit, he's not what he's saying really what he thinks. Yeah. So, which was also something that he really struggles with. All right, well, I will go, I will watch, go and watch that debate so was, if he was not, if he was better it was, than you could, expected. Not, if they hadn't briefed an hour before that they were going to do a thing which they then half an hour before realised and yeah. had become a dead letter, you wouldn't have gone, oh, something's gone wrong here. You'd have gone, oh, this is very fluent. Maybe they, they you know, turned around a draft very quickly. Maybe it just meant that it, it did kind of just stop as a speech. So maybe it just wasn't, they went, and cut out the intro. But I, he, he dealt with that very well. And essentially, although they then tried this, so they had this kind of slightly laughable, she's done this because, yeah, because of the threat of this non-binding motion, she doesn't need to schedule them, will happen at some <laughs> non-specified date in the future. You know, it, it works, right? In terms of, like, if you're a sympathetic media outrider or a shadow cabinet minister or their social media, whatever, or you're a supporter, it is a statement that you can say with a straight face. It's very much you can't fire me I'll quit but you can say it with a with a, a straight face they well, that then, is the joy of us not having to be media outriders for the Corbyn project was we were able to go what's going on and then we didn't um, have to then reverse fire it with the O-turn but yeah so then the O-turn which yeah amusingly happened while John McDonnell was on air going this shows then you know we've got them running scared mission accomplished and then it was like actually it turns out and we don't think it's mission accomplished <laughs> we still want to do this <laughs> now I kind of think that well, as I said said yesterday, I think that's hugely risky because what is the thing they don't want? It is not to get to a point in which, you know, basically Labour's conference motion is if we can't get an election, we will consider all options on the table, including... But not limited a set, to. A set, but, but the <laughs> a thing is, right, is yeah. although, although obviously the Labour leadership's line is, yeah, we said we'd include other options, the obvious follow-up question is, so, mate, could you name another option? Yeah. And, you know, once you fail to pass... A confidence motion in a lame duck prime minister who is not who, who has a best before date of December 2019 at the absolute latest. If you cannot pass that, you cannot credibly argue you can get an election, which means it's that, second referendum time, baby. Except yeah, which means you have to move between. towards the second referendum position. Which I mean, I think one of the weird things is 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 because we all know that fear of the electoral costs is not the only reason why the Labour leadership well, not the only reason why some people in Labour leadership would prefer not to have a referendum everyone's kind of memory hold the fact that there definitely would be quite a big electoral cost and they almost certainly can't get one through the House of Commons because Nicky Morgan and Jonathan Jangley are saying they wouldn't vote for it. So The like, second referendum. Yeah, and also that you might have no deal on that paper because you have to have a commission that puts together the ballot paper. And David Cameron didn't even manage to successfully rig the 2016 referendum to be a yes-no answer, which probably would have put a couple of extra points on that, frankly, he really could have done with. Yeah. Oh, Stephen. Well, anyway, there's only a couple of days left on the parliamentary calendar. We're doing our podcast live, which people, if they're listening to this on Wednesday, it is tonight, if you've listened to it on Thursday, Thursday, then you'll be able to catch up with it. Whilst we'll podcast it, we'll put it out as a podcast. But um, Merry Corbynmas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! I was going to do like little um, jingle bells and then I realised I couldn't make that noise with my mouth. Can right. you make a Christmassy noise? No. Oh, okay. Right. I'm just, yeah, I'm do just... I, I mean, do I look like a, a Fisher-Price keyboard to you? <laughs> no, I can't make a Christmas noise. I don't noise. know. But, like, you could do that thing that they, uh, they do at the beginning of Here It Is Merry Christmas with the duck used to do. I'm rambling, sorry. Uh, I've got a cold. So um, our question is not why, why are you talking about Christmas songs, although it could be. It's from <laughs> Joe Avis. Yes. Do you think politics would be better served if a minister could only resign from the cabinet once? So if they did resign, they could not be reappointed to a different cabinet at another stage? No, I don't think that. And I'll tell you why I think that for a couple of reasons. I think there's a good point in having... I mean, you've written before about this, about the point of shame in public life. And people should face sanctions for what they do. But there should be gradations of badness, right? I think it was right that Amber Rudd went over the Windrush, making a mistake, not being properly briefed and across her brief. But equally well, that was principally an error of being on top of stuff and her civil servants also slightly let her down there. You know what I mean? I, I put that in a different category entirely to Boris Johnson having an affair then lying about it to his leader just bold-facedly, like, which is what he did to Michael Howard, right? There's one that is, if you were in a normal workplace there's one that would be a, a formal written warning and there's one that is gross misconduct and I think that I would like people still to resign over the, the level of the formal written warning one because that was a huge injustice that was done to the Windrush people and that should be noted in public life. But I, I don't mind some people coming. David Laws came back and I think that was entirely appropriate because, again, his expenses case was kind of understandable that he didn't want to out himself and that's why he'd done it. But actually, you know, unfortunately he had nonetheless broken the rules and therefore should be punished for that. So the weird thing is is that I agree in principle, although I viscerally disagree with, with both those examples, right? In oh, right. my my central objection with the David Laws thing, right, is if you live on a state and you're worried about coming out yeah. and you lie on your housing benefit, you get fined and you might go to prison. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. And and David David Laws is not is that is not an issue that David Laws is no, has notably ever been het up about. Mm. So I kind yeah I do kind of think like just like well if you are this for is, the, the it comes back yeah, to the kind of chaos more on the drugs policy thing. It's yeah, like, if like, this is an injustice that you you know you might have mentioned it beforehand. Yeah, yeah, okay. On the Amber Rudd thing. <laughs> The annoying thing is the government refuses to print the full report, so we only have the abstract. But however you slice it, she was not across how the government was actioning its central... The, her department was actioning its central political project, mm. which means that that suggests she is not equipped to be an effective Secretary of State. I am dubious about her being given a job at another important delivery-focused department. But there okay, is obviously okay, a difference between those type of resignations. Emily Thornbury, then, because I think you've probably persuaded me a bit on Amber Rudd, actually. I'm, yeah. I think I might have come around to agreeing with you on that. But Emily Thornbury, sacked by Ed Miliband for tweeting a picture of an England flag with a mm. caption, this is Rochester. Image from Rochester. Image from Rochester. And everyone went, oh, terrible. 
She's insulting the hardware. Well, I know that it was image from Rochester, but I couldn't find my keys this morning. Um, I know. I think of all the bits of my brain that are taken up with terrible bits of Ed Miliband era trivia, and I think what a waste of time all that was. And then now it's come back, worked her way up through the various Corbyn eras. Now Shadow Foreign Secretary, I think, is doing a pretty good job, good media outrider for for the project, and I think that was. I, I mean, I guess in that case, I probably don't think she needed to resign in the first place. But if, given that she did resign over it... I mean, I think so... I think it's good that she came back. So I think, to me at least, it's not about whether or not it's good or bad for someone to come back. Because in an odd way, the thing about politics, right, is it's not like an ordinary job. So I think it was fair enough for Ed to sack her. It punched a very painful bruise for the Labour Party in terms of its ongoing woes in in small towns, which obviously is why it didn't win in 2015, why it didn't win in 2017, why it might not win next time, etc., etc. Right. So it's fair enough to kind of go, no, I'm sorry, your thoughtless tweet means that you don't get to be in the shadow cabinet. I think the the reason why it's important for people... You know, having a kind of one strike and you're out policy is bad is it encourages you know one of the big things since eroded norms right is that the reason why Theresa May allowed Esther McVeigh to be called out with an unprecedented letter for lying to the so house by the National Audit Office yeah. right about um, universal credit yeah. delivery yeah. is because she couldn't really afford to to voluntarily expunge another lever Yes, it was um, the Brexiteer affirmative action policy. Yeah, and if you have a situation in which if you lose someone, you can't ever get them back, uh, just encourage, basically, in practice... It's cling it, on. That's it, the yeah. it encourages people to cling on, not take the rap for something, take, take no responsibility, because, okay, yeah. that makes sense. And so I just think it, it becomes really bad for accountability in other ways. I mean, there clearly is, you know, again, to... Oh, God, this means and this will be the third successive week in which I start whining about norms, but they are really important. There is a There are insufficient numbers of fail-safes in our constitution to get people to not do bad behaviour. I think instead of having a one resignation and you're out, I kind of think things like the NAO, maybe a supermajority of, com- of a select committee, mm-hmm. ought to be able to, once a parliament to go we think you know our select committee you know two-thirds of our select committee so you don't have this oh but you know the opposition is just being mean to us Mm. has decided that we think that you should not be here and we've decided to sanction you and this minister we can only use this power in our brief once but we've used it on you and the nao could once every parliament go we think you've lied about this thank you goodbye yeah, I'm th- the only problem. <laughs> the only problem with that is if you if they use it really early on, if they use it like a month in, the DCMS committee, drunk with power, goes no longer can you be DCMS uh, DCMS secretary, then then you might potentially then get four years of people being like, I'm clowning around, I'm cutting the TV license, I do what I want, you can't get me again. Yeah, but then like ministers and other political because so the problem with the with Esther McVeigh and the DWP right is that. Although I think one of the weird consequences of the things she said, which aren't true, is a large chunk of the Conservative Party has convinced themselves that the welfare reform problems are not going to be their electoral problem at some point, mm. which they are hugely mistaken about. But the the lies have allowed people to go, oh, well, that's a Labour problem. The reason why there has been no immediate political consequence is that there isn't yet a kind of loud electoral pain point for the government. Mm. And when there started to be one, you've seen backbenches in marginal seats go actually philip Howe needs to find more money to prevent the universal credit cards and the difficulty is 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 most of the time the kind of shock absorbers of, of you know constitutional propriety are public opinion with windrush right public opinion was part of why amber rudd went theresa may would otherwise have definitely wanted to hold on to her with stuff like the dwp and the nao right 
she's not incentivized not to lie because the Tory party has convinced itself that because loads of Labour MPs don't like Esther McVeigh, she must be doing something right. Yeah. And they go, oh, you know, that horrible thing John McDonnell said about her. It was a horrible thing that John McDonnell said about her. It doesn't mean you get to lie to Parliament. Mm-hmm. But there's no electoral incentive to fix it, so they don't. And so ideally you would have another source of resignation you know, to force people out when there is no electoral reason for the governing party to let go of them, but they've done something clearly wrong. That problem is only going to get worse after Brexit because the very small constitutional protections we have are, of course, things that are about the way that the EU limits our sovereignty. So, okay, I think for both, for different reasons, we've ended up at the same answer, which is, no, it's good to let people come back into Cabinet, mostly because it will encourage them to leave the Cabinet in the first place. And now I'm joined by Cariad Lloyd. Hello, Cariad. Hello. You have co-written a pantomime, Dick Whittington, at the Lyric Hammersmith, which is on until the 6th of January. Yes. But you do an astonishing number of other things as well, <laughs> including Griefcast, a podcast, yes. and also Ostentatious, mm. a Jane Austen improv show. But let's talk about the panto, because <laughs> I am kind of fascinated by panto, because I just think it's one of those things that seems completely normal to yeah, British people. Yeah, yeah. And if you brought over a kind of random... German, say, or even maybe an Australian. I'm not oh, sure yeah, how anybody. much of a British tradition it is where they'd be, why are these men dressed as women? Why is this girl in tights? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah I, yeah, I co-wrote it with the director, Jude Christian, and it's a very strange thing, Panto. So my sister-in-law is Japanese and that was the first time I realised how weird Panto was because we were trying to explain it to her and whenever you can't explain something in one or two sentences, do you know what I mean? So we were like, oh, it's like a Christmas play but there's a dame and that's a man but everyone shouts and they throw sweets and they sing happy birthday and my poor sister-in-law's face was like I just like it was too much it was like you've added one too many things and that's when I thought god it is weird isn't it it's a weird tradition but you know it's what it's what we've got <laughs> so ta- your so your panto's Dick Whittington yes they go on a rotation at the Lyric huh. so there's they have they'd go from like Aladdin Cinderella Dick Whittington and I think Jack and the Beanstalk is theirs so yeah we didn't choose it it just was Dick Dick's time as it were <laughs> um is there anything that is problematic about Dick Whittington yes yeah definitely I think all of them have a, a bit of stuff that like so they did Jack and the Beanstalk last year and they changed Jack was a girl but just called Jack and then they made you know her love interest was a man called Jill and it, it sort of there was still a love story and similarly with this year once we when we, me and Jude came to it we were like because there's a, a bit in Dick Whittington where for some unknown Victorian reason they go to Morocco they don't always say it's Morocco, but it's sort of it's sort of described as sort of a mysterious Arabic country. And so often the traditional I think traditionally it was, you know, kind of in that wave of Victorian obsession with other cultures and exoticism and Orientalism and all of that. So they would have a section where they went to Morocco and I guess you'd you'd kind of do dancing that fit the time. So we decided very early we didn't really like that idea that we were just going to disappear but there has to be a bit where they go somewhere and that's where the cat learns to chase the rats Mm -hmm. and then he comes back to London and can get rid of the rats so it's sort of like important for the plot so we made the choice to set it in the land under the sea because we were like well let's just it needs to basically be somewhere completely obviously originally it was designed to be somewhere completely not in an English person's imagination somewhere they'd never been to and now I don't think that is Morocco anymore (laughs) so we were like oh well let's make it the land under the sea and let's make it this sort of magical place because that's what it's doing in the narrative it's a magical place the cat learns to be a cat so 
I think it's probably also one of those things when the Victoria, whoever wrote it in Victorian times, probably had a kind of job lot of quote unquote oh, Arabic yeah. costumes yes. left over from some other place. I think so. And now it's kind of hardened into like, oh, only people who do PC gone mad would yeah. take out this thing. And you think a lot of those things that look like you know traditions that we must never question are actually just done for kind of well, we got yeah. a job lot of fezes. So. Got a job lot of fezes, or like it's a narrative reason. Like you can see why narratively you need Dick and the cat to go away to learn. So, like, well, where's fun and, and would look visually exciting? Sure. And also panto fans will get beyond me because it's not even Victorian. Like, I think it's earlier than that. And they have, you know, there was lots of different traditions. Like, and Dick Whittington, like, always has a mop and bucket routine because there's a bit on a ship. Where they can, so it's like, there's all this sort of weird stuff that's been gathered over hundreds of years. So well, What happens with the mop and the bucket? Oh, I mean, I, I only read about it. So I've, I've never seen them. But traditionally, they have a sort of comedy take on when they're on the ship and there's a mop and bucket routine so we again we had a scene set on a ship where they get shipwrecked because that's what happened they get shipwrecked they normally get shipwrecked in north africa but we this ship just fell on the sea and they went to land on the sea and i assume it was just an opportunity for lots of again what's cheap probably mops they probably had a lot of mops and buckets around what's funny someone falling over a bucket it's always funny my, so my other thing i have about panto is a lot the times i've really enjoyed taking i took my niece and nephew to the birmingham hippodrome one with which was seven dwarfs we oh, got right. one wow years ago. and we went to, i think I'm, i was gonna say we went to one with a pirate in wimbledon with my other niece and nephew a couple of years ago yeah but that might have been peter pan yeah that makes it that would that's yeah, why they yeah. were yeah. pirates that- but peter pan's not traditional panto because obviously that's much later yeah it comes in later but it's in the oeuvre of the pantos but surely the point of panto is that you take children to it and then you laugh at all the dirty jokes that are done deliberately to go yeah. over their head <laughs> i think so i mean and also with dick whittington obviously it was uh quite hard not to make dirty jokes and there was a couple of reviews that said uh, there's quite a lot of dick jokes but honest to god this is my defense of it we made some dick jokes and then what happens is i think british audiences are so smutty that literally someone would be like oh dick's here and we had written that genuinely as someone introducing the character and everyone in the audience was like (coughs) and i just think we love that kind of oh i'm laughing at something but the kids don't get it but let me tell you kids these days they really did get a lot of the (laughs) jokes The audience eyes in us like they know what we're doing but then a few of them would definitely go over their heads but i think we all know what we mean yeah I think everyone I'm, knows what i'm sure Dick i saw a panto with new doctor who companion bradley walsh in it once and oh. they summoned up some kids to the stage and he went to this one blameless six-year-old you know get your hands out of your pockets i make the entertainment round here mm. and you thought is that is that six-year-old now scarred <laughs> life? I mean, it was- yeah we went to see some pantos the year before like last Christmas and Jude and I and people from the Lyric and we yeah just sort of made a list of things we loved and things we were like we really want the kids that come up to feel like they were part of a show and not like they were a cheap gag (laughs) no offense Bradley Walsh (laughs) and the Lyric has a big history of um although it's a panto they want children to be introduced to theatre so that it's not that kind of variety panto where people come on and do a turn or do their mop and bucket routine they want it to be a narrative play so that was very much our goal from the start was that we're telling a story, we're telling the story of Dick Whittington, someone from out of town who has to learn how to fit into London and eventually become mayor. So we really wanted it to be like you saw a play. It's quite a woke panto, actually, of all the panto themes. Yeah, well, yeah, it is very woke. And we wrote that he was from Wales and the amazing Luke Latchman is playing him. And we wrote that, you know, he comes to London and he doesn't fit in and everyone says you're not... Queen Rat, we have it. She's the sort of the head of the alt rat movement, is what we've gone for. <laughs> right. And she's spreading hate and fear. And you know, what we tried the 
big moral message we wanted to get across because it is so about London, Dick Whittington, is that it doesn't matter if you're not from London. If you live here, you're a Londoner. So that was the big, that's the big takeaway message is that Londoners mean you just live here. And once you live here, you have a right to say what happens in the city. And if we all gave each other that love and respect, the tube would be a lot nicer. It's basically the takeaway. That is yeah I bet that lasts for about five minutes people go outside <laughs> and then people no, not standing on the right well yeah there's the, the spirit of London is called Bow Bells which is a very traditional Dick Whittington character and she's full of joy and love but the only thing she won't abide is if you don't stand on the right of the escalator so true yeah. um, what else was on your list of things that you do and don't like in other pantos then well I think the big thing obviously as a you know two female writers was the female roles are few and far between and in Dick Whittington the love interest is Alice Fitzwarren traditionally and her, she's the daughter of the dame who runs the you know Fitzwarren sweet shop or cafe whatever it is and so we really wanted Alice to just be a character and not a lady that smiles because you know that's great that's fine but I am an actor as well and I didn't feel I could responsibly write a part for another actor a female actor that didn't wasn't good or useful or fun and I didn't want someone to spend their Christmas going I come on and I smile and then I leave so we've tried to make Alice yeah you know like a cool London girl that takes the piss out of Dick for not like wearing the right shoes and not knowing what the cool slang is and doesn't really she's very street smart and we tried to give her a lot of stuff and then there's a character played by um Margaret Cabon Smith who actually plays three characters she plays the old mayor who is a pigeon mayor pigeon who's retired you say mayor pigeon like, oh yeah of course yeah. that's what a pigeon exactly. who's a mayor yeah. would be called well yeah. we also we just were like we kind of were like oh the old mayor's retiring and normally it's played by sort of you know old gruff man who's the mayor of london is retiring and i thought well i mean more funny if it was a pigeon and who better to run london than a pigeon? Yep. and she also plays captain p jones and first minister mergen who they're basically all pigeons but that's played by margaret capon smith who is a very very funny comic actress but again we yeah, we just wanted to make sure the roles were balanced and that women had funny stuff to do. That was a big thing. Are actors still snobby about Panto? Because I remember there was a big thing about, God, it was probably now 10 years ago, I went to see Ian McKellen play Widow Twanky at the Old Vic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that at the time was this kind of like, but, you know, how could from King Lear to Widow <laughs> Twanky, how could it be? But it, it is good, solid work. It yeah. brings in a huge number of people, audiences. So, do you know, do people kind of go, but I'd hoped to give you my Coriolanus? <laughs> I think actually he was a bit of a turning point. I think now there was a, I think a bit in the sort of perhaps like from the late 80s to 90s, wasn't it? The panto was seen as like really kind of like icky and forgotten and what, why do we still do this? And I think it shouldn't be. It's a really lovely part of our history and our tradition. And I think people like Ian McKellen and, and the big theatres choosing to put them on, like this is the 10th anniversary for the Lyric, Hackney Empire's on their 20th anniversary. So I think those big theatres investing in that and being like, no, for Christmas time, we're going to make a show that isn't intellectual, that isn't, you have to know this. It is purely silly entertainment and children from six to their parents, their grandparents can all come together. Because how how amazing is that? How do you get kids into the theatre by showing them, you know, there's... It isn't necessarily incredibly boring. Yeah, it's not necessarily boring. And if your parents like it, that doesn't mean it's boring. There's something that all of you can enjoy. I mean, that's why Strictly Come Dancing is successful, guys. Oh, don't even start me on Strictly. Oh. I've got very strong feelings about this year's Strictly. Oh, so have I, but we'll have to talk about that. Okay, I'm give sure me one time. strong feeling about this year's Strictly before we end. Okay, 
Do you want to give it now or do you want to, do you yeah, want to talk yeah, about it? it? But I want yours. Okay, mine is that I believe that very, very strongly from the start that Ashley should not have been allowed in the competition. It's controversial and I am, I've watched every episode of Strictly since it's been broadcast and I think Ashley's a lovely girl but she's a professional dancer. Yes, yes, exactly. And I found it, I found it tricky when they were like, well, we're being hard on you, Ashley. And I was like, She's a professional dancer. And every VT was like, I'm really struggling this week. I don't know if I can do the dirty dancing lift. Yeah, I, I know. Like, Guys. And exactly. And poor old Susanna Constantine. You think, I know. On. But I felt a bit, I, just to be equal opportunities, I felt the same when lovely Matt from the one show won and he was like doing yeah. gymnast flips off tables. Yeah. And you're like, well, those of us who missed out on the chance to do it at <laughs> seven are never going to acquire that ability in our thirties, Matt. But that's why it was so great. That I'm so proud that Stacey won because it really felt like she was someone who didn't really know that she could dance and then worked her ass off was like oh I can be quite good at this I thought for Strictly they often do reward at the end the actual dancer so I, was, I thought it might go to Ashley so I was very pleased that Stacey got it I thought Fatoza's Lonely Gerthoud was exceptional it was exceptional and also oh. her her jazz the routine that they did the jazz routine yes also good oh. but no Stacey was I think Stacey was the correct winner because she yes. told she, even the Les Mis one which was the a Les Mis one over the top but it was so good she told a story she told a story and you watch someone fall in love with dance that's why Strictly is amazing when you see someone fall in love with dance I, I weep every time but also it just felt like the kind of literal opposite of twitter and british politics yeah. and it was a group of basically nice people trying to encourage each other being happy yeah. for each other's success i know it was like a little bath anyway yeah. anyway that's what panto can do exactly. is uh bring people together good segue just like panto dick whittington is on at the lyric hammersmith until 6th of january 2019 thank you carrie lloyd thank you very much You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Helen Lewis. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Morning Call is going away for the Christmas holidays, but if you want to start the new year right, why not sign up to it? Just search Stephen Bush Morning Call. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.